Flower crowns, culturally appropriative costumes, influencers doing airplane-grade hallucinogens. If you've never been to Coachella, you probably think of it as a sum of the memes and viral news stories that have circulated about it online, or, at the very least, as an avatar for American youth culture at its most extravagant and, well, capitalist. Today, we're going to advance the somewhat controversial thesis that Coachella is actually one of the most fascinating cultural happenings of the year. And we're right on time because Coachella just wrapped the second week of its first year since the start of the pandemic, making it the first major music festival to return in its wake. And Andrea was on site to experience it. I sure was. So I'm curious, Emily, what do you think of when you think of Coachella? Um, I mean, a lot of the references that you just mentioned above, the flower crown, maybe like glow sticks or something, even though I don't even know if glow sticks are part of it, or like those old raving devices. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I think a lot about Lana Del Rey, like after <laughs> flower crowns and culturally appropriative costumes. I think of Lana Del Rey both as the kind of artist that one would see perform there. And as sort of someone also informing the event with cultural commentary on itself. Like she literally has the song Coachella. You know, one of the lyrics is, I was at Coachella leaning on your shoulder, watching your husband swing in time. I guess I was in it because baby for a minute it was Woodstock in my mind. I was at Coachella leaning on your shoulder Watching your husband swing in time I guess I was in it Cause baby for a minute It was Woodstock in my mind So kind of this idea of American culture being nostalgic for itself or endlessly rehashing itself which feels very Coachella to me Um, but also... I have never been to an event like Coachella. I've been to a lot of music festivals, but other than maybe Bonnaroo, like most of the major music festivals on the East Coast are more like, it's less of a sleepaway camp type situation. Mm. It's sort of like an event that you just, you know, take the train in to see during the day and then you leave by midnight and it's kind of just happening in the city, like GovBall. For right. So so it's kind of just another like fun thing to do in the summer during the day. Exactly. Like a little diversion and then you go home and you go back to regular life and maybe you go to a bar with friends, but it's not, you know, still Coachella. <laughs> but you live on the West Coast. You've been going to Coachella for around a decade now. As a West Coast person, can you explain the festival's draw? Yeah, it is ironic a little bit that so much of that is like modeled on the concept of Woodstock, but that has now translated to West Coast festival culture and not so much East Coast culture. Not to mention Woodstock 99 not going so well. Shout out to our episode with Craig Jenkins. But yeah, festivals are very much part of music culture on the West Coast. And of course, the pinnacle of that is Coachella. And it's perhaps the most mainstream, well-known, but there's now kind of a festival for like every sort of subcultural persuasion or genre. You know, you have Desert Days, which actually started as a response to Coachella out in the desert once Coachella started kind of getting a little more mainstream. And now Desert Days is like this bastion of amazing psychedelic and underground music. You, of course, have Electric Daisy Carnival, which originated out here and became a bastion for EDM. And then you have a bunch of much smaller ones that are not necessarily super consistent, but that kind of get back to the roots of these being community gatherings for showcasing music that you'd be really stoked to discover versus stuff you're already familiar with. I've wondered that a lot myself about the draw. People go because it's a draw and it's a draw because people go. But of course, there's a lot, lot, lot more to it than that. And I mean, fundamentally, the People are going to festivals out here, I think, for the same reason that you talked about. You know, it's the thing to do with friends when the weather gets warm. But it's also, they're kind of places to go seek culture. 
like I was saying, there's so many different kinds of festivals out here now that cater to so many different tastes that in lieu of, you know, thriving urban undergrounds or anything, these are places where you can like kind of go and find your people or just go, you know, hang out with that core group of friends that you like to go on vacation with. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, though they originated as communal DIY events like Woodstock, like Grateful Dead tours, the last decade or so has seen American music festivals evolve into just this colossal industry and a cutthroat revenue driving industry. Events like Coachella represent a significant chunk of the $20 billion concert market, and over 32 million people in the U.S. attend music festivals each year. So it's not a small thing. Also, a 2019 Deloitte survey of millennials also found that the appetite for that kind of experiential culture is very real. 57% of respondents said that they prioritize travel and seeing the world over owning a home. Moreover, North American corporations spend more than $1.3 billion sponsoring festivals, venues, and events annually. Right. And I think it's fair to say that no festival embodies that intersection of culture and industry more than Coachella. So those of you who are listening, if you're not familiar, Coachella is the American mega fest, and it takes place in Southern California in the desert city of Indio each spring. It was founded in 1999 and has since grown to a three-day, two-weekend event that now draws a total of around a quarter million attendees. And in 2017, which is the last year that Coachella released earnings info, the festival grossed $114.6 million, which set a significant new record for the first festival franchise to earn more than $100 million. This year's lineup featured zeitgeist-ruling headliners like Billie Eilish, Harry Styles, and Swedish House Mafia, in addition to a range of major players and rising stars in EDM, electronic, hip-hop, and rock. In short, if you want to get a real who's who of the power players in the popular music space today, Coachella's is kind of the new Grammys. Very true. But it's also more than that. What we talk about when we talk about Coachella is no longer just a festival. In drawing hundreds of thousands of people from around the world to this blank desert canvas, the event really doubles as a mirror of culture and society at large, and a microcosm of the ways that art, commerce, technology, and community intersect and influence each other. To attend Coachella is to check in with the state of American pop culture. It's to step outside of our humdrum workday existence and check in with how we're doing. And that's why Andrea, along with a tight crew of fellow music and culture journalists, has been attending and covering Coachella for 10 years. It's kind of my critical Super Bowl. Amazing. Alongside her has been Katie Bain, a longtime music reporter and critic and currently the director of Billboard Dance. Today, Katie joins us to discuss how the festival has changed or not changed and what this year's edition tells us about where we're at. We also discuss Coachella's roots in alternative music and rave culture, its tangled relationship with influencer culture, and the surreality and joy of reuniting at Coachella after two years hunkering down at home. Welcome back. We're here with Katie Bain. Katie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So you two met at Coachella about a decade ago. Can you first tell us a bit about your meet cute story and <laughs> why this environment was so fascinating to both of you that you kept on going back? Definitely. I think that Andrea and I can both contribute here, but we were covering Coachella it was 2013, and we were both going to cover for LA Weekly. I had not met Andrea, but I had heard about her and heard that she was wonderful and read her stories. So we were carpooling to Coachella, Andrea and our editor and me. I was driving, and Andrea was a bit under the weather and got into my car and immediately fell asleep in the backseat, and I didn't... Uh, 
you know, have a conversation with her probably until later that night after <laughs> we got into the house and gotten settled in and food was being prepared. And she kind of came around and realized, of course, that she was lovely. And over the course of the weekend, we just proceeded to have a really special time together. I had been at Coachella the year prior and then once before that. But this was my first time really going for work, which felt different and special and be the sort of format that I would go in for in all of the following years. And so I think we actually, Andrea, did we share a bedroom that year? We were we were very much fast friends, I think. Yeah, we <laughs> we we shared a bed, in fact. I was actually working at my paper in Las Vegas at the time. But I popped over for this weekend to kind of moonlight cover for Ellie Weekly. And then we just hit the festival together. And it was really great to experience it with somebody else who like very much saw the festival, had the sort of same critic thoughts about it that I did. And we just, yeah, kind of kept going from there. And now it's it's very much a tradition. It's both a tradition and I think something that we both feel is important to continue to document in our work. But it's not just us, like we've really developed a kind of core crew of other music journalists that we go back with every year and has really, to an extent now, become more like family, which is kind of funny because I guess that's kind of part of what makes festivals special and kind of their own cultures, the people you meet there and then continue to see year after year. And it's also notable that you still, as music journalists, continue to go back every year when you know, live music in general has been a bit de-emphasized in journalism. I'm curious, like, what stood out to you immediately from this critic's perspective as fascinating? Oh, man. I mean, I was really intrigued by the atmosphere. I, prior to this, hadn't been to a lot of large-scale festivals. I had been to Bonnaroo, I guess, three times. Bonnaroo was sort of my, my home base, being from Wisconsin. And then after moving to L.A., I knew that I very much loved the festival format and Coachella was sort of the nearest place to go get that. And by the nature of being a music journalist, the one that was sort of most available to go cover. And I went there, I think the first time was 2000 and it was either eight or nine when Prince headlines. And I just remember being as I was with Bonnaroo, really blown away and intrigued and satisfied with kind of just the crowd atmosphere and sort of the freedom that I felt I experienced that one experiences like within the confines of a festival and just sort of meeting people and of course the music itself, but it was just the sort of sense of community and revelry, I guess, that I really liked. Yeah, I'd agree with that. You know, being a younger music journalist when I started and how larger festivals like Coachella still felt a little bit underground or Coachella, I think, was like definitively mainstream at this point, but not this kind of popular culture content behemoth that we know it as today. There were a lot of really exciting acts. I think part of what helped it crest at this time, you had the concurrent rise of EDM and like kind of like maximalist aspect of culture and music. And then you also had, that's, this is around when the sort of like nostalgia bookings really started. Like it was like comeback sets ruled the festival game in the U.S. and elsewhere. I remember for me, like, you know, Pulp is one of my favorite bands. And so it was like Pulp was playing Coachella one year. and It was like Blur and the Stone Roses. The Stone Roses. Yeah, that was one of the emptiest sets I've ever seen at Coachella. <laughs> or like Guns N' Roses, right? I mean, ACDC wasn't necessarily like a reunion, but it was kind of one of those blasts from the past. Yeah, exactly. Or or even, I think this was 2012, 10 years ago. This was a moment that really put Coachella on the map, but also kind of spoke to its place in cultural production was the Tupac hologram. Do you guys remember that? Oh, yeah, I was there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Emily, are, do, you, do you remember the Tupac hologram? I do, but just like, through the internet. Right. So I think all of that was kind of fascinating to me from a critical perspective. But it was also, it felt like it was an exciting generator of what was happening in music rather than, I think, reflecting it back to us, which is maybe more what it is now. It still felt like there was a lot of possibility for like big performances to happen or for surprises. And it was just 
kind of exciting because this was early, earlier social media culture. But I think people were already starting to become really hungry for communal experience. And it just felt thrilling to be there. I mean, the scale of it was unprecedented. It still is, but you're, you're expected now. You're used to it. You've seen it grow. Yeah. I, and I think that's kind of what, what kept me coming back. It's, it's always been, for me, a place to go check in on popular culture and really get this like cross-section kind of microcosm of it. Like, what's up with youth culture? How's it going? You, you see that over the course of three days or six days, depending if you want to do both weekends, which are, if you're not familiar, they're exactly the same. That was a format that Coachella started instituting in 2012. So it's also been interesting to see that kind of experiential production and replication develop and become a thing. I remember, I remember like in 2011 when they announced that they were going to be doing it across two weekends and finding it really absurd, like you're duplicating an experience. But then, of course, I, pre I proceeded to go both weekends for <laughs> the subsequent 10 years. This is the first year I'm not doing that. I cannot even imagine going two weekends in a row. You are a warrior, Andrea. My reputation precedes me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that like the first year that they announced two weekends, they both sold out almost instantaneously, which really just emphasized like there was such an incredible demand for this experience that you know persists to this day, 10 years later. It's wild. And you are still going back. And I know you just got back. Tell me about what your experience was like this year and maybe some ways in which it felt different from other years or stood out. Yeah, I think that there's something for me in the fact that after two years off, two years away, it didn't necessarily feel that different. Like, it was really easy to sort of plug right back in and have it be familiar. Like, it, it was easy to know what to do. It didn't feel like anyone had sort of forgotten the protocols of how to go to Coachella. Everyone seemed very much prepared and the crowd seemed sort of as enthusiastic as in years prior. I mean, influencer culture is obviously a big conversation at Coachella now. I think that Felds as prevalent, if not slightly more so than in prior years. It's just becoming more and more heightened every time you go to Coachella. Andrew, what felt different to you? You know, it's interesting. Katie and I have this tradition to go to this diner in Palm Springs with some of our other journalist friends the Monday after Coachella to kind of debrief with each other and, and eat cinnamon rolls. And so after we had our traditional debrief brunch, I was using the bathroom and this older woman walks in when I'm, I have all my wristbands on and stuff and I'm washing my hands and she's like, oh, were, were you at Coachella? And I was like, yeah, how could you tell? And then she said, well, how was it? And I kind of paused and was like, you know, I'm still figuring out that answer. And she goes, well, had it changed? And I, without even thinking about it, I just said, no, but we have. And that's a thought that I've kind of kept coming back to it as I've been writing this essay about the festival and preparing for this conversation, was that it felt very much like a well-oiled machine that we've come to know it to be. But after two years of not having live music, of having experiences that are pretty antithetical to the entire idea of being at a festival with 250,000 people, it felt like we were kind of getting our sea legs. And yeah, I, I felt like Coachella became more Coachella in that it was like peak brand activations, peak influencers, peak people wearing Coachella outfits, almost to the point of it feeling like Coachella was performing itself. I like that. Coachella performing itself. I remember they have like an artist and guest area backstage behind the main stage, and that was the main entrance for Katie and I. And walking in and it had just, that whole backstage area had gotten bigger, but like had more. There was like a YouTube lounge and, you know, immediately it was like celebrities. Like we literally saw Victoria's Secret models. It was funny too, because Katie and I had like gotten ready and we're like, we have our outfits. We look great. Like we're back, baby. And then we walk in and Alessandra Ambrosio is posing for a photo with a bunch of lingerie models. <laughs> 
But it was also like people wearing these very polished and what looked like very uncomfortable, dysfunctional items of clothing. Well, I just think that like when a cultural institution like Coachella has a reputation that precedes it, I find this often in like large scale EDM events as well, where people that have never been there before, like I think most everyone remembers that starter pack meme of what you need to purchase and what you need to do to sort of be prepared for any given event, even if you hadn't attended before. And it feels like Coachella is very much that where there are items that you need and sort of things that you need to do. Obviously, like the flower crown is the most cliche one, and that's become sort of passe. But it feels like you can buy into the culture based on the reputation of the event versus like having ever been there before and go there and sort of feel prepared, maybe in a sort of cliched way. Yeah. I mean, as an East Coast person who has never been to Coachella, I definitely feel like I have a sense of what that starter pack looks like. A lot of those like little memes associated with Coachella are definitely, you know, widely known and and synonymous with it. Like if I do word association, the first word that comes into my head when I think of Coachella is flower crown and then followed by cultural appropriative costumes. Yeah. Well, that's sort of one thing I felt like I was searching for as a critic this year. To go back to what we were saying about what felt different. What what felt different was that it was like even more the same. I, I think what first popped into my head when we walked in And again, you have to remember, I think what entrance you come in through is very much like a metaphor for what version of Coachella you're going to experience. Like coming in through the artist backstage zone is going to look and feel very different than waiting in the long slog security line of GA. I think that the shoes people are wearing in any given area at Coachella will tell you a lot about what the vibe and experience is. But yeah, it was it was walking in through that area and just I was thinking. I feel like I'm still on Instagram. Yeah. And that no longer feels that different from our daily lives. It was like every corner seemed to have some kind of activation. The clothing that people was were wearing. I remember seeing some headline from that day that was like, Euphoria Fashion makes its debut at Coachella, which was like, what? <laughs> you know, I mean, very true. But, you know, it's fashion like from a TV show, like from something digital euphoria fashion and also like it kind of goes hand in hand with like tiktok fashion so seeing the way that people have dressed for online in the past two years then being reflected back out in real life was very surreal yeah i think that you know if if anything felt slightly different it's just that like that element of coachella feels more and more heightened every year where the festival itself and many of its attendees are there to participate in some sort of sale, whether it's their brand or their clothing or themselves, Coachella is a huge marketing machine. And I find that personally to be a detractor from the event. I think it, for lack of a better word, mitigates the soul of the festival when we're all just kind of there presenting ourselves and trying to participate in some like capitalistic endeavor it it makes those moments of sort of real culture and real connection sort of harder to find and all the more precious for having found them because they are available but i would say that in the last you know 5 10 years as andrew was saying with the rise of social media culture like coachella's felt more and more crass that way in that everyone is there to sort of sell you something on the internet. And it's interesting because the festival started in 1999, well before influencers on social media, well before social media itself. Could you tell us a little bit about the origin story of the festival itself? Like, how did it start? What was the original culture or counterculture it kind of grew out of? Yeah, I was doing a little bit of research on this. And so the festival's origins actually go back to 1993 for a concert that Pearl Jam performed at the Empire Polo Club, which is the site where Coachella happens, um, because they were doing their boycott of venues controlled by Ticketmaster. This Pearl Jam concert really emphasized this site was functional and 
in ways ideal for large-scale events. And Coachella then started six years later in 1999 through a West Coast, Los Angeles-based production company called Golden Voice. And I thought this was particularly interesting. I was reading an old story about Paul Tillette, who is the current president of Golden Voice and has been there for a long time. And he said the idea was to book a lot of cool bands that weren't very hot on the music charts. The quote is, maybe if you put a bunch of them together, that might be a magnet for a lot of people, which I thought was really fascinating because that's really not what Coachella is anymore. The intention, I guess the mandate, especially in the last, I would say since like 2017, 2018, has very much seemed to be booking bands, especially the headliners who are like mega popular on the charts, like the biggest pop stars in the world. So the fact that it started as just kind of putting a bunch of bands that people wouldn't normally go to see together and attracting crowds that way is definitely ironic. What were the original bands, types of bands or acts that would appear there? It was indie alternative rock. The original lineup was back. The Chemical Brothers, Morrissey, Perry Farrell, Rage Against the Machine, Tool, Ben Harper, Pavement, Underworld, Moby. You know, it goes on and on. Spiritualized, Andrea, for you. Spiritualized. Always at Coachella. <laughs> Basically all of the acts that we were listening to or I was listening to in 1999. I feel like they could bring this lineup back today and it would actually do very, very well. Hmm. I mean, I remember in high school, it felt like this ultimately like super cool especially if you were like a music kid. I remember the Pixies had reunited for Coachella or they had just gotten back together for the first time and they were playing Coachella and it was like Radiohead and the Jesus and Mary chain. You know, they, that that version of the lineup, I'm thinking of a little later on when it was starting to become a little bit of like more of a widely known thing in the early to mid 2000s. Like those lineups, I feel like if they booked it now, it would just like tank. <laughs> but you also have a million other festivals to offer those kinds of things. So I think it's a little bit like Coachella has also kept moving the goalpost in terms of taking that cultural temperature, engaging who people really want to see and gathering all those people in one place. In that sense, I think it's almost remained kind of consistent. Another interesting footnote that I want to point out is that I believe the announcement for the first Coachella was very shortly after the whole Woodstock 99 debacle, which we covered on another episode. Yes, I was going to bring that up. I'm glad you did, Emily. I remember one thing you and I were noting, Emily, when we were talking about the Woodstock 99 doc was how the documentary ended. But being like, but then Coachella happened later that year and it was beautiful and like perfect and free and like people weren't burning it all down. Perhaps it was, but like Coachella has certainly had its its share of problems over the years, including having the Red Hot Chili Peppers headline one year and it all sort of devolved into a degree of chaos with like a huge dust storm and stuff, which is also similar to how Woodstock 99 ended. But it was sort of like, I don't know, we talked a lot about how Woodstock 99 had this reputation for broiness and especially like white male aggression or that's what it's become like synonymous with. And I'm wondering if like at least in the documentary, it seemed like they were presenting Coachella as this sort of softer, maybe more open atmosphere. Right. I mean, I obviously I can't speak to those earlier years of the festival. It had a reputation for just being like very chill. And it's it's also why you've seen a lot of spin-off festivals in the area since then. Because I think people talk about how Coachella has sort of lost that that sort of underground community feel. And so you have other things that have popped up in the area, like Desert Days, in response to what the original Coachella felt like or in response to trying to actually preserve that. I don't know. What would you say, Katie? Well, this is just a theory that everyone is free to disregard, but I wonder if there's something to the fact that in 99, people in Southern California, you know, a lot of music fans were really coming out of underground rave culture, like warehouse rave culture. And there was, you know, definitely the influence of 
drugs and ecstasy in particular. And I, I wonder if, you know, Woodstock 99, I'm looking at the lineup, like didn't really have the element of, you know, electronic music, dance music. I mean, it's very, it's very American. Whereas the original Coachella lineup like has a lot of European influence, a lot of electronic and DJ influence. And I just wonder if crowds on the West Coast were sort of trained in a different way because of the like really significant proliferation of rape culture in the 90s in L.A. and beyond. Mm, that's a great point. I'm thinking of um, specifically like and I, I don't have the lineup right in front of me, but in, I believe, 96, there was a festival in Southern California, basically like in the woods outside of L.A., called organic and it's one of those that like everyone who i know who was there gets this far away look in their eyes when they talk about it because it was really revolutionary in terms of the lineup it was underworld the chemical brothers orbital the orb all acts that would like eventually go on to play coachella when it launched three years later what is also interesting about organic is that a lot of the people that would go on to be big players in Southern California festival culture, including Paul Salat, who's the president of Golden Voice, which runs Coachella, had some involvement in organic. And so I feel like that just kind of gives a significant example of just like how rave culture really fed into like the early Coachella years in terms of who was operating these festivals and who was playing them and just sort of the influence of taste and just bringing in a lot of UK acts and like bands that are huge, but were considered, of course, alternative in the mid 90s. Yeah. And I think I'd also add to that, you know, we were talking earlier about like kind of Coachella performing itself. I think for Woodstock 99, it's like the opposite of an, an you know, kind of organic festival. Woodstock 99 was trying to perform, was trying to bring, bring back a cultural moment from the 60s and that we saw how that failed wildly. Because you kind of can't do that. Whereas I think to what you were saying, Katie, with festivals like Organic and then like the earlier iterations of Coachella were just a response or a growth out of an underground cultural movement. That's also sort of a key difference with maybe like how the essential heart or spirit of it was different. And now when you talk about Coachella this year and you haven't had it for two years, I think that gap is part of why Coachella felt like it was performing itself a little bit again. I think very much what you can attribute Coachella's growth and success to has been its relative consistency and that tradition, and it keeps up with the momentum of culture and continues to reflect it that way. Earlier on, it was like one or two two years where it skipped a year. But in its current iteration, I think having that gap, that break in culture, and not being able to reflect it back at us in real time sort of affected the vibe a little bit this year. And it made it feel like, how do we do Coachella again? Oh, yeah, it's like this. Rather than what do we have to learn about this year's pop cultural mecca, if that makes sense. That makes sense. And I also just love this idea of viewing Coachella as a prism through which you can see all these different trends in music and culture at large. I'm curious, over the decade that you've been going specifically like in the tens, what sort of trends or broader shifts musically did you see Coachella reflecting? I think the one that is most significant to me is the rise of dance music and specifically EDM. Coachella was really an avatar for the EDM explosion in the US, like 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, to the extent that you know, areas of the festival, like the Sahara tent specifically, really became dedicated to this sound, which at the time was super bombastic, really maximalist, drop heavy, kind of pound you over the head with it, you know, electronic music by acts like Skrillex and Calvin Harris and Knife Party and Diplo, <laughs> Major Laser. And I think that the sort of maturation of dance music at Coachella is a really fascinating narrative of just how tastes for dance music in the U.S. have matured since that initial EDM boom. You can really watch the growth of, you know, like I said, the EDM explosion 
And then, you know, as it stands now, just the shift in taste away from sort of quote unquote main stage EDM, which you still see here and there, right? Like you still see acts like, I don't know, duck sauce in the Sahara and like the Sahara still does house dance acts. And you had Swedish House Mafia, of course, this year headlining the main stage is sort of a, you know, pseudo nostalgia act, but really like dance music exists everywhere now at Coachella. And you have huge stars like Jamie XX and Fred again, who both had massive sets this year. Disclosure, who I think have very much supplanted the EDM stars of old. And also the festival's Yuma Tent, which is its club area that was introduced at the festival, I think in 2014, 15, one of those years, just sort of to cater to the taste of people that were into more house and techno. That area has probably, you know, like, triples in size. And so you can see that audiences are now more into like, quote unquote, underground music, music that is, you know, been popular in Europe for longer than it has been in the States on a mainstream level, despite having originated in Chicago and Detroit. And then, you know, hip hop also really taking over as the prevailing genre in a tent like the Sahara, as EDM has faded away in terms of like popularity and trendiness. Would you say it's also like this general trend towards what is actually charting as opposed to artists that couldn't break through? I mean, in, in terms of what is actually charting, I think that you see that really significantly in the headliners. You know, like we were saying before, the headliners used to be like ACDC and Guns N' Roses that aren't necessarily on the top of the charts right now, but they're still like fun and novel. And I would say since 2017-ish, there seemed to be a significant change in terms of who they were booking as headliners towards very much like these are the hottest pop acts on the planet right now. And it became Ariana Grande and Beyonce and, you know, this year Harry Styles and Billie Eilish and The Weeknd and acts that I think wouldn't have necessarily felt as at home at Coachella in like the mid 2000s and even the early 2010s. Beyonce to me was sort of a change moment of, oh, they're now booking just like the biggest pop acts on the planet. And I'm not saying that those acts aren't deserving. Like Beyonce put on arguably like the best Coachella headlining set of all time, but it does feel like the priorities are different. Yeah. It's interesting that it's like a trend that we see happening in, you know, music journalism as well, where there's maybe more of a preference for the larger stars and indie acts becoming de-emphasized. It's harder and harder to place stories on them. Something that I find interesting about Coachella and festivals in general to sort of change the subject a little bit. You know, you can almost think of Coachella like a magazine where it's like the performances are the ostensible thing you're going to see, but it's also just like a bunch of ad spaces or there's like part of totally. the Coachella experiences. It's almost like a magazine that exists to create real estate for advertisements. And we've seen this play out in a really big way with influencers influencer culture. I'm curious, you know, Andrea yesterday to me described Coachella and influencer culture as having almost a chicken and egg relationship. How have you seen that relationship play out over time? And if you had to call it, which of them would you say came first? Yeah, I love the magazine point that you were making. It's, it's very easy to like stand around, you know, with your arms folded and be like, they're selling out. But it's like, yeah, they are i don't know that they ever promised anyone otherwise whether you like it or not the unadorned reality of it is that they are meeting a demand and it is a cultural demand and a cultural appetite and to do something on this massive scale you got to get money i know everyone thinks they're making like a gajillion dollars and they are but a lot is getting put back into the festival so it's a little bit like yeah you want coachella you want this maximalist experience you got to find a way to pay for it. Like you, you're going to have to deal with ads. You're going to have to deal with ads in, in your magazine. You're going to have to deal with them popping up on your website. And it's like all very much that same kind of economy and ecosystem. But I also think 
the rise of the influencer at Coachella or vice versa can be traced to the rise of EDM in popular culture, particularly the aspect of spectacle. I did a piece for Spin back in the day. I think it was in 2013. It was like a digital cover story. And it was it was specifically about the rise of the spectacle industry at music festivals and in Las Vegas as well, which is where I was living at the time. Specifically with Coachella, it could be traced back to Daft Punk's 2006 headlining performance. And that that's also a meme now on the internet. But especially when you go to Coachella, it's like everybody jokes like, Daft Punk gonna come out this year? We literally had Daft Punk on this Coachella bingo card that Katie and I made. Didn't cross that one off. But that was this this really iconic performance because they had this giant sort of uh, like like light up pyramid. Then, you know, with their costumes look like they have the helmets and it was just like full like laser light show. And it, it was really extraordinary and like, thrilling. You can look up videos of it on YouTube. But then that that raised the bar and it reshaped the bar in a new way and spectacle from 2006 on. It kind of became a definitive aspect to what Coachella sold. And subsequently, like all electronic acts following became less about the performance and more about the spectacle and like maximizing the experience. And then concurrently with that, you have the rise of social media and technology and people being able to document this stuff. And I think together that also gave rise to the notion of FOMO because then they could share the spectacle. And then you also combine that with things like, you know, who's doing it bigger, better, grander, like more intense this year. And then the surprise aspect, the scarcity, like the Tupac hologram sort of theory there. All that created a perfect storm of spectacle production and FOMO and a feedback loop of that that made it a place where more people wanted to come to see and be seen. And Coachella being able to thrive off of that and get more money cloud and reputation off of that. And again, I think when I say those sorts of things, I want to be very careful. I, I don't want it to be assumed I say that with a negative connotation. I think this is just a cultural fact. And I like to look at it as an objective cultural truth rather than something that we should judge because it's like that's very much what Coachella is serving and it's how they do what they do. I, I think that makes sense. And I appreciate the sort of mercy that you're lending to it in that like these festivals are really expensive to put on. Like the headliners alone are millions and millions of dollars. Um, they have to they have to get money. And so like influencers are like the the ads you hear if you don't pay for a subscription of SoundCloud. Like it's just an inevitable fact. Yeah, I mean, it's you, you get what you pay for. If you want a fancier, like more ad-free Coachella experience, you can pay like $500 or $1,000 and get a VIP pass or whatever else kind of pass. That's so heady. Totally. Like to go back to what I was saying earlier about stepping in there and being like, I still feel like I'm on Instagram. It also made me think about like sort of how much the festival and our current 2022 reality refracted through the festival. It felt like IRL, like in-app purchases for convenience. You know, it's like if you want a better parking spot, you pay $200 for the preferred parking pass. If you, you know, want nicer drinks or like chicer food and some maybe shorter lines and nicer bathrooms, you pay several hundred dollars more for a VIP wristband. Or you want air conditioning, you go inside the Ray-Bans lounge. Like that's not, some, that's not an in-app purchase, but that's like, watch this ad. You know what I'm saying? There's a real class structure to Coachella based on economics. Like if, if you can afford it, like you can have what, like a 10 course meal on Saturday evening as the sun sets in this beautiful garden area. And if you don't have that kind of money, like you have a piece of pizza. And like that applies to like so many different sectors of Coachella. Like we were hearing crazy stories about sort of what's available to people in the glamping area and how like any request there simply must be fulfilled because these people are paying like tens of thousands of dollars to camp that way. And so it, it is really like a fascinating cross-section of like money, really. Yeah, I've always wanted to do a story about what is it like to experience the most expensive package you can buy for Coachella. I mean, like formally through the festival, which would be like those like super, super VIP glamping experience. You have a concierge on call. 
you can bring you whatever. Apparently that's where it was like where all like the housewives of Coachella stay. We were hearing stories about them ordering like kitty pools full of margaritas and whoever was was there just had to find a way to figure that out. Wow. Or you pay $150 for car camping and call it a day. It's just so fascinating to hear these like additional ways in which it feels like a reflection of society. Yeah. And that way too, like going back to influencers a little bit, there's so many different little economies within Coachella as well. Like if I'm, you know, Vanessa Hudgens, like I'm going to get paid to wear clothes to Coachella and put those on my Instagram and tag them. And then, you know, Andrea and I and many other people see the sausage vendors that are outside after the show, just like selling hot dogs to people who walk by. Like there's a lot of different ways to hustle for money at Coachella. Yeah, it's all across the spectrum. It was like one in the morning and we literally saw like like a child, an actual child selling sausages in the parking lot at Coachella while we were on our way to an extremely moneyed Spotify party for Swedish House Mafia. Those were like the two class tiers that bookended our night trying to leave the parking lot. It was pretty surreal. Yeah, completely. To celebrate the halfway point of our third season, we are lifting the paywall on this episode. You are getting the full version at no extra cost to you. But if you want to keep getting complete episodes of our podcast, along with bonus goodies like cultural recommendations and original writing and criticism, you can subscribe to us for just $5 a month over at our Substack. That's theculturejournalist.substack.com. In light of all this, who would you say Coachella is for at this point? Like, what is the target demo that the advertisers and festival creators have in mind? And then who actually shows up? Yeah, and that's such a good question. It is. I don't think there's like necessarily a, a simple or super on the nose answer. A part of me wants to say that Coachella is for everybody, but that's obviously not true because you need a lot of money in order to go. That said, if you do have that money, I still think it attracts a pretty broad spectrum of music fans. You know, you can go and hang out at the main stage and have like a very pop experience all weekend, or you could go and be in the Yuma or the Sonora and have like a very indie or electronic experience. And so I don't think that there's like a particular faction of fan that it is for. Andrew, does that feel true? Yeah, there's two things that sort of pop into my mind when I think about this question. It's for people with economic or cultural power, but it's also, I think, for like your average 20-something who wants to go experience music culture and togetherness in an increasingly like isolated and fractured world and it, it becomes like an event that people save up for and fly out for and they get their crews together and they want to just go dance their faces off to some artists that they really love maybe wear some funny clothes and like party in the desert for a few days i guess that, that's what your average youth right but then you talk about the encroaching like powers that be that, that, and for them, it's an opportunity. There's people who go for an experience and there's people who go for opportunity, I think is maybe one way to look at it. There's this Twitch streamer, Hassan Piker, his Twitch handle is Hassan Abi, left, left-wing political commentator. And there's these stories about how he flew into Coachella, like in a helicopter or something and was wearing like in a thousand dollar outfit that of course, you know, Twitch immediately got on his case about. Right. Like it's still kind of the starter pack. It's just the starter pack if you're really wealthy. Like you do the helicopter and the thousand dollar outfit. Like the three class tiers of Coachella's starter pack. It's like camping, hotels, like helicopter lodge. <laughs> you know, one thing I also noticed, and I don't know if you noticed this too, Katie, but I felt like Coachella on Friday, like that whole exclusive area or the VIP area when we walked in that felt like so mind-blowingly polished, influencer-ish, watching these models' abs like glisten in the sun. Beautiful. Yeah. Gorgeous. You want to pluck your eyes out after seeing how beautiful these women are. <laughs> and, and these celebrities and stuff. And it was really overwhelming. But I felt like I did not see that as much after Friday. 
And again, 250,000 people, like fully possible. We just missed it or they were somewhere else. But I, I kind of had this sense, like I think a bunch of people came on Friday to take photographs and pose and get that paycheck and just stayed for the day and didn't come back the rest of the weekend. Which is, I think, what weekend one as a whole had been in the past. And like, I almost wonder if that's been hyper accelerated now because going out is like so difficult and crowds and there's still some hesitation. So it's like, are people just coming in for a day to do ad placement and to be like, hey, I was at Coachella. That's a really interesting theory. And I'm I'm sure there's way to it. If you can show up for a day or a few hours even and make like 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, I have no idea how much these money these people are making just off of you know posting a few instagrams and going home like of course of course you would do that and i think that yeah what we saw in terms of who was there on certain days spoke to that and also as you're alluding to like i think there's so much to be said about the differences between weekend one and weekend two in terms of who shows up especially like from the music industry itself like weekend one feels so influencer heavy, so music industry heavy, that it creates a very different vibe, especially in certain areas of the event that doesn't really exist as much weekend two, where the festivals really already happened. Everyone kind of knows how it's going to go, more or less, and no one that doesn't want to needs to come back for it. It kind of creates like a better atmosphere, I think, in my experience, for just like pure music experiences. Absolutely. If you want to actually like go to Coachella and like see music and chill, go to weekend two. If you want to like go to the Grammys, go to weekend one. <laughs> exactly. Like we got weekend one is the Grammys. It's the new Grammys. Yeah. Did you see like did you get a sense that this event, this spectacle is resonating as much with younger people of like the Gen Z generation? Because all of this just sounds so like peak millennial culture to me. I think that Coachella has a reputation that precedes it so heavily at this point that that it is resonating, even if these Gen Z kids haven't even been there, like they know that it's a big deal to go. And I'm sure that they're having incredible experiences once there. You know, it just, it, it lends itself to that. I don't think that it's over for younger audiences. I think that they're probably just experiencing it in a different way than obviously people like Andrea and I do now. And then, you know, as we did in 2013. Did it feel like the festival was making gestures at all to cater to this younger audience, which like I assume is a more desirable advertising demographic? Well, the festival was giving away a commemorative NFT when you registered your wristband this year. So. Yeah, I didn't see any of it because we were there like in real life, but I know that Coachella was doing a lot of activation and outreach in the metaverse this year and that there was a lot to tap into on that level if you were interested. I didn't necessarily see that heavily advertised, but again, I'm not one of the people that necessarily would have been advertised to. Was there a TikTok energy in addition to an Instagram energy? Like, did you have any sense of that? Ooh. Like, it seems like Coachella is really good at like adapting to all of the latest technological developments. Oh man, gosh. To me, it still felt pretty Instagrammy. I don't feel like I saw anyone making content besides taking photos. And, you know, these photo shoots are everywhere. Like it's, it's comical really just to see uh, like how many people are out there just like to have their photo taken by their their boyfriend or girlfriend or best friend or whomever and it's funny because i can like call up in my mind's eye right now exactly where those spot there it's like specific unofficial spots at the festival too these little plots of land there where suddenly like the crowd kind of stops moving and it just becomes these like lawns where people are just taking photos and posing and it really is beautiful and a crazy scene when you're there so you understand the impulse i mean katie and i took I think we took one picture together of Coachella, so maybe I take that back. But, you know, in years past and stuff, like, we post in front of the various wheel. Like, you gotta. Yeah, it's like hard to grudge people that. Like, it's a beautiful festival, and it's extremely photogenic. Not picturesque, but photogenic. Yeah, but now that I think about it, I don't think I saw people, like, making TikToks. I'm sure they did. Coachella's physically so much work, too, that I think even if people had planned to do that, between the crappy reception 
your phone battery probably dying, like the sheer mass of people, I think it's actually very hard to make any content beyond like a little photo. I also feel like people were kind of just on their phones less. I want to talk about that, Andrea, because you rightly pointed out that although Coachella was doing the live stream thing before the pandemic, and this year in some ways it seemed like it was designed with home streaming in mind first, I'm wondering like now that you don't even have to be on the ground to experience it, what do people get out of going? What is their relationship with their phones, especially like after, you know, we didn't even get to go there for two years? Yeah. Well, first of all, Katie, would you agree? Do you feel like people were not on their phones as much compared to past years, photo ops notwithstanding? Yeah, I I felt that and I observed that for sure. Yeah, and this is something I, I started noticing this past year as we started going back to shows was that people didn't seem to be on their phones as much because for me as a music journalist, one way I take notes is by filming stuff. So I am a little bit that jerk in the crowd who has their phone out a lot. I kept noticing how I was like kind of the only one at a lot of these shows. And I thought, oh, well, you know, I've been going to see bands like Dinosaur Jr. and like Spoon. Those are not concert crowds that attract people who like to be on their phones a lot anyway. But then I went to Coachella and it was like same thing. Of course, people were taking their phones out and filming or we like took our phone out to like send a, a funny video to our friend. But I think because maybe people know that it's being live streamed and people are so used to being online all the time, FOMO has been removed from the equation because there's nothing to miss out on. If you're not there, you can, you know, watch it on the live stream. So what are you missing out on? I think it kind of fundamentally comes down to like gathering in a crowd. I mean, the real highlight of Coachella this year for me wasn't any one particular act, but the feeling of moving through a giant crowd of people who are just as stoked to be hearing that song or seeing that artist as you are. And you stop for a second and you dance with a stranger. You share the excitement with someone you don't know. And it's just, it's a really great sense of community and belonging and shared experience. I know that's corny, but there is some levity and like heart in that, that I think that's not something that can ever be like live streamed or Instagrammed or whatever. I'm just going to say that I, I totally agree with you. Like humans need other humans and at Coachella you're able to experience other people and your friends and strangers in ways that are pretty whimsical and lighthearted and just like lend itself to a lot of, I'm going to sound corny too, but just like moments of, of real joy and real connection and like Andrea said, that's hard to get if you're, you know, watching it at home on your computer. I totally respect the people that do. There are a lot of people that don't like big crowds and Coachella is a lot of work and it's physically exhausting. But for the people that go, I, I would argue that like that's a big part of it for many. It's just like the opportunity to connect. And it's kind of fascinating how the entire thing is so heavily mediatized and broadcast that maybe there reaches a point where it's like the state of total surveillance, as Andrea said to me last night, and you don't even need to participate in that aspect of it anymore because it's taken care of for you and you can focus on like the one thing that we weren't able to have in the last two years, which is just being together. Yeah, exactly. Like if I'm at home and I'm watching Doja Cat on my computer, like I pretty much know what's going to happen. Like she's going to perform. She's going to be great. I'm going to go to bed. But if I'm watching her at the festival itself, the situation opens itself up for so much more opportunity for unplanned good things to happen. To Katie's point about those moments of joy, one thing I was also thinking about was that we've just spent so much time, particularly in the last two years, four years, 10 years, constantly inundated with information about things we don't like, whether that's like everything happening in the news or people on our social media feeds this is why we have trouble finding any kind of like political um, or social consensus in our country right now, I think, is because we're just constantly inundated with information about things we don't want or don't like or haven't asked for. And something that makes festivals so special and that felt like really cathartic at Coachella or like any kind of concert I've been to this year is like fundamentally, you are all there, you are gathered at that set or at that place for something that you do like with a bunch of strangers that also like that thing. 
and you're there to have that experience together and share that 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 unifying factor together. And again, I know that that's kind of corny, but I think that that's something really powerful and increasingly elusive. And I think that's why people gather at festivals in the first place. We talk a lot on this show about like the dark forest theory of the internet, basically like finding spaces of organic consensus and togetherness, places that are unsurveilled. And I think that Coachella is more surveilled, it's self-surveilled more than ever. At least for me this year, there was like a little bit of feeling of loss more than ever of those dark forest spaces, whatever may have been left at like, you know, such a massive mainstream event. But I think maybe the dark forest is in the physical consensus of people gathering to see something they're really excited about. Lastly, I want to ask, what was it like to be venturing out into this experience two years into the pandemic? Did Coachella feel like this great escapist phantasmagoria that it used to be? And if so, what did it feel like people were escaping from? Yeah, I I hesitate to use the word escapist. I think for me, it's more what Andrew was saying of like going to a place that everyone there can say, okay, we, we chose this. The chances of being sort of sideswiped with, you know, upsetting news, upsetting information are just less by the nature of the environment. And so I guess, yeah, I mean, that is escaping reality as we've come to know it, especially during the last two years. But it just felt more like reinstating a balance and then being able to come home with this sort of like nourishment on like a a human level, like a soul level, emotional level that, you know, makes sort of daily reality a little bit easier to get through. Love that. Andrea, what about you? Yeah, this might be one of the the things I disagree with you on, Katie, which is I've long associated Coachella with escapism. And again, like how that ties into the arc of EDM and spectacle and FOMO. I've written about this in like past essays or like even set reviews about Coachella. I love going to see the sets that I wasn't interested in because I'm really curious about why tens of thousands of other people are interested in that. I'm thinking of like this ridiculous Calvin Harris set from a few years ago that I wrote up. It's like, I think people were going to Coachella to escape the nine to five slog of pre-pandemic lives. If you're like a CPA in I don't know, Indianapolis and, you know, you're saving up to buy a condo and car payments. You also save up maybe to go to Coachella once a year with the same crew of friends you went to high school or college with because you could go there and instead of being, you know, desk job guy, you can go and be that guy, whoever that guy is. You can wear a crazy outfit. You can drink yourself into oblivion and rage to Calvin Harris for a weekend and not think about the monotony and hassle of your day-to-day life and not think about the limitations on who you can be each year as you get older. And you're, you're given a sense of cultural participation and cultural agency. And that's something that's also, I think, increasingly elusive to most people. That whole narrative has been rewritten since the pandemic. So I don't think people were going to Coachella this year to escape. I mean, they're escaping like being stuck in their houses for two years and like not being around other people for sure. But that's not an escape so much as a return to presence or seeking presence. And I felt a real appetite for that all around the festival. And I think there was kind of just like a sense of annoyance at, at the din of, you know, activations and things like that. Like, I think people just wanted to be there, go to sets, see the music, see their friends. The crowd also felt like particularly kind of sober to me this year. I think one conversation was like, what drugs are people going to be doing at Coachella after the pandemic? You know, for a while it was like everybody did Molly or like mushrooms or, you know, people are like, is ketamine going to be the drug this year? And I think like just being at the festival and being with people was like the drug. That was like enough of it itself. I think people were just yeah, they, they, they were like raw-dogging life, you know? <laughs> touching grass, or in the case of Coachella, touching sand. 
No, definitely grass. Katie and I took a good long lay down on some grass at Coachella. And that was really nice. Like that, that moment was as good as many of the musical moments. Yeah, absolutely. On that note, Katie Bain, thank you so much for joining us. We really enjoyed this conversation. Such a pleasure. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. So thank you. And thanks for being my Coachella pal. Always, always. <laughs> This episode of The Culture Journalist was produced and edited by Emily Friedlander and me, Andrea Dominic. Our theme music is by Mark Donica. To check out more writing from Katie and I about festival culture and music over the years, head to our Substack. That's theculturejournalist.substack.com. And if you like what you're hearing, give us a share or leave a review on Apple Pods to help support independent journalism. 